My mom likes to organize. I mean, really likes to organize. And she called me up this week and asked me, Hey John, do you want your VHS tape of the Blues Brothers? Or should I donate it? Now, I do love the Blues Brothers. I really love the Blues Brothers. And I've seen it hundreds of times. But for better or worse, I am not sentimental. I don't like greeting cards. I throw them away. The Blues Brothers tape that got me through high school and kindled my passionate love affair with music and the blues and art and storytelling and American roots means nothing more to me than any other piece of plastic. I'm sure that means I've missed out on some things. But right now, with all we're going through, maybe leaving some of those things behind isn't such a bad idea for most of us. This is Eyeball. I'm your host, John Lemus, and today we're talking to my buddy, Matt Janella, famous for his golf influencing, famous for his broadcast reporting on Golf Channel, before that, Golf Digest, before that, and before that, and before that, and before that, and before that, Matt has done nearly everything in media. And we're talking to him from his long journey through media and storytelling to try to figure out where are we headed next. Stay tuned. After the first couple of weeks, it was more like, you know, all right, what's going on, you know, in the sweats. And now it's been this opportunity to, yeah, there's nothing that's going to take too long. You know, no, the, I love digging many, in for sure. And it's, uh-huh. especially those, those little projects you're like, come on, it's not a big project, but it's just keeps going down and down and down the list. Yeah, yeah, that's a great yeah. way to get back on those things. Yeah. That's it. That we've actually made lists. You know, it started anything for a sense of accomplishment, you know, I mean, you know, like it's like we're, you know, we're addicts to sort of getting things done and we're, we got a limited space. You're looking around like, well, you know, I've always, I've been thinking about doing it. Today's the day. Yes. Hour is the hour. Like the the groundhog's day, perennial Thursday or Sunday, whatever it is today is it's always the day. It's always ready. We're always you want there to, learn to play the piano. You want to, you know, ice sculpt, you know, it's, you could do it. it's coming next. Yeah. If only you were in Orlando, that would be a slightly easier I thing know. to get done, I but True. I bet you could do it. I mean, I, Larson for sure has the right hookups he, from his Minnesota past to get you right on the ice sculpting business. He can do anything. He can do anything though. He's threatening to start finally his rib religion barbecue truck. It, he makes I, 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 the last night before really a real quarantine kind of mandate came down. Larson, uh, Eric, and Jen threw a, a little backyard barbecue, and he had been he, the science that he put into the to, the barbecuing of the of this meat was that in itself was unbelievable. And then the actual meat on the no backpack. the brisket. I saw pictures of that brisket. That was bananas, and and he told me himself. It's never been as good as that. Like that, that was the echelon so far. He had, he has heat monitors and sensors that he was tracking. I, I think it was a seven hour, eight hour process that he put into it. It was, I would bet on him to be successful at whatever he decides to do. For sure. He'll be successful. And for sure. He's one of those guys who I don't need to know what I think about certain things. I just need to call up Larson. I'm like, Hey, listen, this He's like, yeah, I've done all the research. I've done, I did 50 hours of research. Here's what the answer is. I'm like, great. I don't need to know how you got to the answer. He's my guy. I, we're, I'm there. Whatever you said, yeah. I'll do that. 
Yeah. I totally agree. Um, yeah. And then he's also got Jen. I mean, talk about Batman and Robin. I mean, they, yeah. they are literally a dynamic duo. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, he's, he's probably Robin and he would, he would agree. No doubt. Jen is, Jen is Batman. She's unbelievable. That goes without saying that goes without saying. Yeah. You guys, <laughs> you guys have, you've been working with them forever. You know, Eric was Heinz Klutmeyer's assistant for a long time. And Eric was Ben Van Hook's assistant. And Cy Sear obviously ran in that circle. Mark Ashman, you know, going back to early, early days of Sports Illustrated, you know, from time to time, I'd be wrangled into uh, helping Heinz, whether it was cleaning his apartment or actually doing something from a photo standpoint. Did Larson also work with Frakes for a long time? Yes, he did, for sure. He did, right? And so, yep. you know, you had these big bombastic That's really a whole podcast series, you know, yeah. between yeah. Frakes and, and Heinz. That's, a, that's, that's, a, that's two seasons right there. But, you know, I always admired Eric because he could take, he was thick skinned. He could take the yeah. shit from these egomaniacal sort of bombastic, you know, volcanic personalities that would tend to blame everybody but themselves. Larson was impervious to all of that. It was like he just he drove through the smoke. I always have I've always admired him for being able to just still operate and function. And he was on the shoot of Heinz when we, we did Tiger with the Tiger at the Isleworth Country Club. I Which is, I think, I think that's got to be the craziest, or at least one of the craziest photo shoots you were involved with. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, without doubt. Live tigers, no cages, you know, raw meat, tiger <laughs> woods, Isleworth ballroom. Yeah, and all the craziness that, uh, that ensued. It was, but Larson was the assistant on it. So I've been telling this story for a long time, forgetting. And from time, I'll be like, oh, Tiger Woods, Tiger and Larson. Like, you know, dude, I was there. I'm like, oh, my God, that's right. I mean, he. Well, not only was he there, he already had the knowledge of what had happened on Heinz's previous shoot four months earlier. Correct. With Tigers, which is correct. a story which is like photo. I mean, it's like it's like one of the biggest photo lore stories of all time. Shoot for Wrangling Brothers, I believe, in which yep. professional Tiger trainers, two brothers. One of them gets attacked by the tiger and I think they live, but like serious, significant, multiple rounds of brain surgeries. Mauled in the head. Yeah. Mauled in the head, had his entire head in a tiger's mouth and just, you know, just went bam. So he gets a call. Hey, Heinz has a cover shoot for the 98 masters preview with tiger woods. You want to help out on it? He's like, yeah, sounds great. He gets there. No one said about tigers oh. he has no idea he's walking into and he had i mean this story is it's fresh it's just happened he walks in and there's a <laughs> two adult tigers there he's just like nah no wait no and so the whole time he's like i was just looking for exits the entire time and the, and the, you know the and what happened a lot of craziness ensued that one of the trainers hit one of the tigers in the ass trying to clean up some of the the mess that a tiger created because it you know it got nervous so it it shat all over the backdrop and they went and tried to scoop it up. And the, the trainer missed, hit the tiger in the ass. The, oh my God. The tiger launched off of the, the stool at Heinz and Heinz never moved. Doesn't move. Heinz, wow. Heinz didn't move. And the trainers get on top of the tiger. 
So that tiger is out of commission. It's freaked out. It goes back in the cage. Bring out this 800-pound snow tiger that eventually became, was the, the cover subject. And His name it, was, I believe, Samson. Correct. Nice, John. He starts slipping around on the backdrop. So he gets nervous and crazy. You know. Meanwhile, I had promised Tiger and Tiger's agent, Hughes Norton at the time, we were going to do the shoot with Tiger Cubs. We didn't even have any cubs in the room at that time. So uh, it was it was um it was quite something. And then the art director, Steve Hoffman, basically told me he's like, here's the deal. This is on you, bud. <laughs> if this goes down, I'm suggesting you don't do this shoot. I'm telling yeah. you right now, because of all the craziness. So I kept giving the trainer warnings like, Dude, you gotta get this under control. And we we got it. At that time, I was 27, 26. Wow. My whole future and career was on the line. It was, they had already said that we don't think this is going to happen. The editor, Bill Colson, was like, come on. And we had this tiger smelling azaleas, like Jack Nicholson smelling the roses. Oh, right, a right, right. That was going to be the backup and it ended up being the, the opener. Turns out Tiger was allergic to azaleas. Oh. But we still did get that shoot. The tiger really saved the whole thing. Tiger said he was a gamer, right? He just came in and did it. Walked right in, went right up to the tiger, was curious, was fascinated, was brave and bold. And Butch Harmon was there. Hughes Norton was there. And this trainer and Heinz and Larson and myself and art director, Steve Hoffman, and, and about 25 other people who were handlers. <sighs> and, you know, and I just love this whole thing is taking place in the ballroom of the Isleworth. So like, it's a fancy private golf club ball you know it's tiny yeah 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 it's it's the wrong place for all of it like that's that's what that's photo shoots are always there's something crazy and then if you back out enough you're like wait where are we well it was surreal because we this guy had promised me cubs but he was also also explaining to me that cubs are more dangerous than tigers because tigers are more trained you know adult tigers have spent more time with trainers grown up, the longer they can spend with them, the safer they are. Right. And the tiger cubs are less trained. So I said, great, but I'm in my head, I had the little, you know, Johnny Carson cubs. Yeah. 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 The Steve Irwin on the talk show kind of vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Like totally. And this guy was kept sidetracking me to that. I'm like, well, I'm on the hook for cubs. So you got to bring cubs. What, what, what what we end up shooting with is one thing, but you got to bring there. He did. He rolls up into Isleworth country club flatbed truck filled with cages filled with the most as every exotic animal you could think of wow jaguars tigers lions gorillas everything was on the back of this flatbed truck spewing out sawdust this is a whole different era of of magazine photography in general because just the the budget and that one line item there we everyone can imagine like holy shit well that he just showed up because he was Going, coming from one place to another. We oh, were, so you just we, had it. Yeah, oh, yeah, got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't, I don't even know. We didn't really actually pay. You know, the actual tiger component was pretty inexpensive, and Isleworth kind of gave us the space because of Tiger Woods being a member. Yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah. none of it, I don't think, would happen at this point. Nineteen ninety-eight, as you said, Tiger with the Tiger going into defending the ninety-seven. Is that the? Masters. Is that the? You just shot in that little room. Is there? Is there a little like kind of like a balcony yeah. thing above it? That's a, that's a tiny room. It's a little ballroom. It's a little ballroom when we, and we papered it off because everybody was peering in while we were you know, setting up. And so we papered it off. And the first thing Tiger said when he showed up is where's the tigers. Yeah. And I was like, well, wait a minute we, before we, 
before we do that, we got to do this. And he's like, well, I'm allergic to azaleas. I'm like, oh, God, Jesus. Eventually, by the time he showed up, the trainer had Samson calm, re- relaxed, off off a leash and a thing, you know, showing him raw, had a bucket of raw meat. Yeah. And with a certain command, he could get the tiger to roar. So we got this roaring tiger in the Isleworth Ballroom, Tiger Woods, defending Masters champion. I mean, it was beautiful. Yeah, it was. And, you know, we're five frames into it. And I'm like, okay, I think that's a wrap. Heinz. <laughs> you know, we got everybody's still alive, you know, and yeah. Heights glared at me like, you know. For the first I, time in your career, you want less. You want way, way less. I, like, like, we're good. We're good. We banked. We're one. good. You know, we did one. Uh, Perfect. We're, we're good. Uh, you know, I couldn't believe that we actually had a frame of Tiger with the Tiger that could be used as the cover. And I, I think Heinz ended up getting like three or four rolls of film. I, Eric would know better, but. In the end, it, it could have gone a lot of ways for me that day. I'm forever grateful it went the way it did. That's for sure. For sure. Now, what I want to talk to you about today is you've had this amazing journey through media. You've either been, I think it's been a combination of things, but you've been very smart, very driven, but also very aware of trends and where we're headed. So I'm going to ask you to try to figure out, and I know that's what we're all doing right now, especially as we see things start you know, crashing and burning around us. But you went from being a picture editor at SI, specializing in golf. You go over to Golf Digest. You sort of create a photo team there. You bring Christian there. You then, while the director of photography for Golf Digest, go back to school, get a master's in journalism at Columbia, and then switch over to the writing side. You become their main travel writer, who then sees the forest for the trees and pushes them to start their first Instagram account, comes very active on social media, both for Golf Digest, but as Maginella. And then a few years later, you know, and during that time we worked together on some of the buddy trip stuff. We did that great one in Vegas together. <laughs> a few years later, you go to Golf Channel and become an on-air personality doing a somewhat similar role, but just expanding what it could be. And Golf Channel and the mean, you know, in the last I think it's been only the last year they pick up and leave away from Orlando, Florida and move to Connecticut, at which time you probably already had in your back pocket. I would imagine plans for what's the next step for you. And now you've started a production company, have a new podcast. You've gone from broadcaster to podcaster. I couldn't help myself on that one. Sorry. Like, um, <laughs> it's a pretty incredible journey over the space of, you know, 20 years, 20, 25 years, something like that. Mm. And at each step, has it been more about you trying to refine and continue to find engagement in your role in media? Have you looked into the future or just seen what's around you and said, you know, I think there's more. Or I, think I, I think I need to change how I'm seeing these things. I think I need to, to add more skills to my tool set here. In what way have you, you know, and so when you look back, you're compressing everything. So it looks like anyone is a genius going through time. Mm. But you have talk about skill sets. You've added a ton over your career in media and you've touched a lot of different places. So then now you're going into becoming more of a production company and launching media in various spaces. You have these relationships, which really bridge all of media. How did you navigate this journey? Yeah, that's, that's a lot, a lot to unpack there because, you know, I feel like I blinked because it's all just been this one rolling conveyor belt of opportunities, options, you know, energy. You mentioned that 
tool, toolbox or a tool set. Uh, I've always said I'm trying to build a, one thing that no one can ever take away from you is your, your toolbox. Yeah. You know, so I originally started in radio back even before in college. I realized, oh, I wanted to be the play-by-play announcer for San Diego Padres. And so I was going down the radio road. And then I thought, oh, I'd be an ESPN sports anchor. And at a college, I got an opportunity to move to, uh, drove my parents across country because my dad was going to work in New York. The real sliding doors moment in 1989, the World Series, the A's and the Giants. My grandfather had been part owner of the 49ers, original ownership of the 49ers. Yeah. As part of the sale of the 49ers, our family got a bunch of tickets in perpetuity at the 50-yard line of Candlestick Park. Cool. Again, as a kid, you don't know any of the, you don't you take it all for granted. You don't know. I grew up at Candlestick Park. We'd go to the games, my dad and I, and my brothers. When that earthquake happened, the Sports Illustrated photographers, led by Heinz, spill into San Francisco. My uncle had uh, owned a restaurant, Caps Corner, uh, in North Beach, and they were looking for a place to eat. They needed to try to figure out a place to hunker down. And everyone was spilling into the city. And um, my uncle said, oh, you know, we're open to, you know, first responders, to police and fire. And he goes, well, we're Sports Illustrated. Well, my uncle lets them in. The SI photographers end up having this all night, you know, hunker down session at Cap's Corner. My uncle becomes friendly with Heinz Klutmeyer. And they hit it off. Well, I... I'm back in New York waiting for an interview at ESPN in, Bri- in uh, Bristol, Connecticut. Yeah. When my uncle says, hey, ca- call Heinz. Heinz was the one who, when they needed a, uh, like a photographer like VJ Levero or Bill Frakes at Candlestick Park to shoot some of the big games between Niners and Cowboys in the early to mid-90s, they would use my seat <laughs> and put a photographer in it. And I would get to carry cameras for photographers at Candlestick Park. The only photographer I ever assisted was John Beaver. Oh, yeah. John Beaver being like one of the greatest sports photographers of all time, one of the nicest guys to work for or with. He's just, he's like a, you know, I still haven't heard him say 10 words and I've worked with him for, (laughs) you know, you know, I carried cameras for SI. So when I got back to New York, my uncle says, hey, call Heinz. He's in New York. And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's the route I want. I'm going to, I'm off. I'm going to ESPN. Well, he encouraged me again, call Heinz. So I called Heinz. Heinz says, come on into the city. I'll meet with you. Well, I go in, I take the train, walk up to, you know, the Time Life building, 1995. And Lisa Bonifant, Marguerite Schropp, Maureen Grice, Ward Haynes, Brad Smith, Maura Foley, Suzanne Regan. I mean, the, George Washington, Steve Fine, Heinz Klubmeyer. The place was like, and the Yankees lineup of, yeah. of photography and the industry. And I had no idea. I, they said, Oh, wait here with Linda, you know, Heinz will be with you in a minute. Well, Heinz, I waited all day. <laughs> I was there from like 9am until 5pm before he finally met with me. I mean, wow. and in the meantime, Marguerite Schrapp said, Hey, what are you interested in doing? I said, oh, I've majored in communication. He goes, well, they're hiring interns down the hall. Well, let me go down and introduce you. I had a resume and everything. She walks me down. I give him the resume. He's like, can you start tomorrow? I was like, uh, yes, <laughs> sure. <laughs> it was a non-paid internship. And um, that really is where it all sort of forked in the road from I was going broadcast. I thought I knew exactly what I was going to do, how I was going to do it. 
Now all of a sudden I'm a non-paid intern in the communications department at Sports Illustrated. And I volunteer. basically it was like a volunteer, like how many days do you want to work? I said, five, I'll do whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm here. I got nothing else to do. I'm at Sports Illustrated. And on weekends, they were, the photo department would hire me to carry cameras for Johnny Icono, for uh, help Manny Milan. John Grishup taught me how to light stadium, in, yeah. you know, basketball. Basketball. Church. Yeah. And yeah, uh, so some of the, still some of the scariest, like, oh, let's just tap into existing electrical systems that are like, who knows what's going to happen? I'm sure I know which way the current's flowing. Let's just tap in and yeah, we're hanging off the rafters. No big deal. John, that that's only part of it. How about being sent to the bowels of the Time Life building to clean this closet that was filled with all these old power packs? That <laughs> whatever whatever is in those power packs had had rotted, had eaten its way through the metal, Ooh. and it was like we had to clean this. It was like a, it was a health hazard. Yeah. To this day, I'm pretty sure that that's going to be the reason that I someday dot, you know, I yeah, see, but I think right there is a chance to be positive. That's where you got your superpower. And that's why you're going to live to be 160. You know I mean? Yes. I like it. It's, like it's it. a lead acid story. If only we had known. I used to come in on Saturday mornings to help Heinz Klutmeyer, like, you know, clean his apartment. And he was doing all the construction on his place on like 20th street, I believe. And, um, did his, you know, I had to carry his laundry bag to, to, to the laundry. Like it didn't matter. It was just, you know, it's part of what you do when you're in your early twenties trying to find your way. But that then eventually the photo department hired me full time and uh, they, they had junior photo editors at the team. I was working for Phil Jackie, scanning Uh images, creating prints from the color, from the negs. And so that people can edit from them. I was editing, you know, bags of film that they that the games or the sport event, sporting event was no longer relevant. Having a blast doing, I had no idea, you know, this is what I was going to do out of college. But I, but I think going back to uh, the original question, I just, as Don Delaquani said, you know, you're in the building. Yeah. Take a look around. That's half the battle. If look around to see what it is that other people are doing, that might interest you. And that's, that's what, you know, that's, that's your opportunity. Here. Yeah. Well, you know, my, my aunt Carol, Carol Loomis, she, same thing. She got in that building and then 62 years later, she retired. The, She'll uh, forever be the longest tenured employee in time life history. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. That, that, uh, you know, that's eventually how I saw that, you know, I went, I've, I was on my way back from the Kentucky Derby, bringing Frakes and all the, all the film back. And I'm flying back with Jerry Bailey, who had just won the Kentucky Derby. Oh, cool. And I, I'm on the plane and we had to stop over, I think in Cincinnati and I decided to interview him because I thought, look at the winning jockey right here, right here. And I, I, so I interviewed him. I took my notes down, used the, the phone on the, the airplane called SI. And I was like, t- told Steve fine. I'm like, Hey, I just interviewed Jerry Bailey. You know, uh, what, what you know, what, what should I do? And he said, what the fuck are you calling me for? Call Bill Knack. He's the one writing the fucking story. And I was like, oh. <laughs> but right. Th- I mean, that right there to see not only, oh, cool. I'm next to the winning jockey. But then the next step is, hey, maybe I can not only talk to him, but maybe I can interview him. Maybe I can ask yeah. him some questions about what just happened. Maybe I can be more useful. Maybe I can enlarge well, like what my purpose here could be. That was my that was the blood in the water for me from a journalistic standpoint. That's when I realized, oh, instead of sort of helping produce or conceptualize or just grunt work support for the 
shooting of the story, the illustrating right. of the stories, I really was uh, found uh, because they used a lot of my knack, used a lot of my quotes that I had shagged as the opening to the whole story. Because on the inside rail, I see that uh, Chris McCarron and Jerry Bailey are having this these exchanges as they cross the finish line. You know, you won. No, you won. So I asked him about that. He used that whole opening scene because I'm watching right the, the horses go right by, right? He used that whole scene as the opener to his story. That to me was like, wow, you can build a, a narrative around an observation or a quote or a thing. And then I also realized that all the SI reporters had gone to Columbia University. So then I thought, well, you know, I don't want to come to Manhattan and not leave with something tangible, something right. that you know, again, going back to tools. So I enrolled in, in the Columbia Journalism School, realizing that I'm in SI. If I can get a degree, I'm already got one foot in the door. So you were already at Columbia while you're still in the SI days. I started Columbia and SI days. Cool. And then through the first semester, after the first semester is when I got the Golf Digest gig as director of photography and of Digest and Golf World. Well, at that time, I, I almost quit Columbia because I thought, this is a dream job. I'm 30 years old. I'm director of photography of the number one golf magazine, golf world. You know, at that time, print wasn't going anywhere. It was, you know, we had 350 page magazines at Golf Digest. It was a big job. And we were making the transition from film to digital for Golf World, which was the news weekly of the game. Yeah. Built, you know, brought John Cuban over and, you know, working with Dom Froor and Steve Zerley and these guys have been covering golf forever. And I brought Christian Yost in from, he was at SI for Kids at the time. And we made that conversion into digital, which was a great learning experience. But I, I took a semester off. I went to my advisor at Columbia and said, look, I think I'm good. Uh, this was an amazing opportunity. But I, and he goes, whoa, 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 don't, don't do anything yet. You can actually take a semester off without having to re- reapply. Just let's revisit this in three and a half months. So I That's went through smart. that summer. Thank That's a God. lot of maturity right there to say, you don't have to, everything doesn't have to be all or nothing. Right. Just give yourself that, a break. You're a little overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. So one year, it was like an 11 month program. It took me three years to do it at Columbia because I was doing it part time. I would take Saturday classes. I would go up on Wednesday evenings. Golf Digest was very cooperative in my scheduling and I was, I was able to get through it. So after that semester, after the sort of the semester off, I realized that no, I still had this burning desire that this was still worth my time and money and energy. And I, you know, I think back, I can't believe I was able to do it. By the time I was 32, then I, you know, I didn't go back until I was 29. That was also the key. I didn't start until I was 29, which now meant I actually cared. I wanted to, I wanted to, I was, I I wanted to learn uh, as opposed to when you're a kid growing up and they're sort of making you learn. You just want to be free of the things you had known and make your own decisions. You don't know why you care about things yet. So I mean, I think about it all the time, the things in which I would love to be in classes discovering now that I have this very broad range of topics I'm really passionate about. Yeah. Like, oh man, I'd love to listen to someone, you know, talk for two hours about this subject. That'd be amazing. Yeah. And you know, when I'm 19, I'm like, fuck, I just want to sleep. I don't want to drink 25 cups of coffee. I don't want to start drinking beers. And you know, it was all that. Now, why was it golf at SI? I played college golf. I grew up working at golf courses. Uh, my uncle had played at a very high level. Uh, so golf was already a bit of a spiritual connection to 
to the game. I loved, you know, I loved work. If I, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, if I hadn't gotten the job at SI, I had received the packet to Penn State's agronomy school. I was going to be a oh, superintendent. Cool. Nice. I was, you know, I remember getting at Sports Illustrated the packet. I never actually applied because SI then hired me. So that was, again, another sliding doors moment. There's also, a t- I mean, built into this as someone who knows some of these personalities, there's a tolerance for working with some pretty big personalities here that obviously you're also excelling at because I mean, I've known Bill Frakes for a long time and Bill and I get along fine. Bill, you know, <laughs> many things have been said about Bill, but some people can work with Bill and some people can work with high and some people can work with these guys and some people absolutely cannot. Now I never assisted for any of them, but I know a lot of the stories. And so part of what I hear is that you were able to like Larson really to focus on what the goal, why are we here? And to manage some of the other craziness occasionally. I'm from a big family. I'm the youngest of five, uh, Irish, Italian. Everybody gave everybody a lot of shit. I've never, I've never been alert. I, in fact, I, I liked Bill Frakes. Bill Frakes was always really good to me. I think I also had, you know, Heights was the hardest one on me uh, by far. And Steve Fine was pretty hard on me too from time to time. But I always had their, I always kind of knew that they had my back. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, you know, a lot of people gave me shit. Oh, you're the golden boy. You're the Heinz's guy. You're, you know, your uncle knows Heinz, whatever. Yeah, that was all true. But at the end of the day, like Heinz, it didn't matter to Heinz. Right. Heinz, no one was harder on me again more than Heinz. Well, in but fact, none of that I shit told, ultimately matters. You put in the fucking work. Yeah. Well, you, you know? got to do got, and especially at Sports Illustrated. Like, yeah. That's the other thing. Is as Don Delacroix said, "Hey, you're in the building, but now you got to you got to do the work. You, know, you, earn it. Yep. You, you can get in there. It can get you in there. But at some point, you you can at SI with the amount of pages and activity and energy. If you were a weak link, you were gone. And I I've saw it. You know, Phil Jackie. Those guys were, they're operating at a very high level. This was a big, big business. Uh, there was $400,000 a page ads going in Sports yeah. Illustrated. There were a lot of ads. This um, is, and this is, I mean, we're talking now, this is a different era, obviously. I mean, Sports oh. Illustrated has been sold twice or three times since then. Oh, and, you know, part of the rise in your career, it, we can also track it. You know, we've already mentioned Tiger Woods, but part of what was so amazing about your trajectory is that suddenly, Tiger Woods started being unmissable on Sundays. Well, it was transcendent because golf was just golf plus, right? If there was a golf story to be done, it was in golf plus. What Tiger did is took golf out of golf plus and put it on the cover of the main magazine. That's how transcendent that he was to that sport, right? So you go from the purse rise, the gallery rise, the interest rise, the Hello world. He was a global phenomenon who happened to play the game of golf. Yeah. That more than anything, you know, I've written him a letter, you know, saying thank you for, that's cool. Thank you for, you know, allowing me to be part of this vast contingent of people who have been drafting off of your success. I mean, you know, because it's true. (laughs) It is true. Absolutely. It hasn't always been easy for everyone involved either because you got another big personality, you know? I, yeah. yeah. And, and getting ready to talk to you, I talked to our buddy, Christian Yost. And one of the first things I said was, like, hey, congrats on the, on the new Tiger cover. Because I know that's yeah. not just something that just comes together. Even if you're working with Walter and you're working, you know, they have all the right variables. But still, 
you know, it's not nothing, you know, something has been built over a long period of time as a huge sports fan forever. And someone who watching the early days of sports center and loving, you know, those original anchors and all this stuff together, watching that rise was incredible. You know, I mean, we're talking a couple days after the Jordan doc just aired on ESPN. We lose touch because he had another, that's a game in which has transformed since Jordan was in it. And yet no one is ever going to eclipse him just because of how culturally significant the moment was he, he created. And Tiger was the same way. Yeah. And you don't, we don't get those very often. Think about sort of the reflections and the sort of the impact that Kobe had. And, and then, you know, looking, you know, I think sometimes they're right underneath our nose and we don't, we don't realize it. I, for one, realized very early on that Tiger was, this was something that I have never, I, you know, that we were not, we're not going to see maybe right. ever again. For him, 82 wins, 15 majors, you know, that run at 2000 and defending all of the majors at one time, like it did that, that, think about what we would be doing if that was happening now in the time of social media. That was losing our minds. We'd be we, that that was that was a, you know again going back to SI in the in the late nineties it was still on a pretty pretty amazing run I mean I was in the print component that that medium while this was that still mattered it was a it was it took we took all that stuff very seriously at sports mm-hmm. industry editors writers photographers we were you know we we're documenting history the Olympics you know we, I was in the press room one of the few people in the press room when the Atlanta bomb went off at the Olympics. And yeah. we, we were doing a Sports Illustrated daily. You know, as soon as everyone figured out that we were all okay, we went right back to producing the daily to create a magazine that day. And it was like uh, Maureen Grace and I were like the only two photo editors and photographers are sneaking slides of, you know, rolls of film in back doors so that we could try to publish. I mean, right. things, sometimes it just got, it was big, bigger than I could have even ever imagined. It was, it was a run. We happened to, I was in Florida for an assignment, you know, right before a couple, a month before this got crazy. And we got to play some golf together, a quick nine on your home course. (laughs) For whatever reason that came up, we were talking, you were talking, you were telling the story of the 96 Olympics and the bombing. And maybe it was because the movie had just come out or something. Oh, so, or he had, did Richard Jewell just die or something? Something, I can't remember why we were talking about it, but um, it was fun. It was, it was, you know, it was a man, what a, what a cool job in general, you know, whether you're a picture editor or a photographer, when you're flying in and out of places and you happen to rob, you know, a few hours on a beautiful afternoon in winter up north, you're down in Florida and you get to play around a round of golf with some buddies and have some good food. Like, okay, yeah, yeah I'll sign me up for that. I'll do that. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I quickly realized when I got down here, oh, this is why everybody comes from the Northeast Absolutely. to uh, live in Florida. It's uh we're coming out of that time now. It's gonna. It's, it was ninety-eight degrees yesterday, and uh, we're, we're gonna the humidity rain every day at two o'clock, and you know eventually work our way into hurricane season. But I loved the daily, just deluge. That that was very meaningful to me. That was you know I didn't need to watch. I knew it was- you did not. It's, it's, it's you watch it. it. It happens, and you can set your watch on it. It's almost yeah, almost there. precisely yeah. Yeah. Now, was it a surprise to your colleagues to the larger photo community? when you went from your role as director of photography, golf digest to the writing side. I mean, I don't remember it on a daily basis, so I don't know if it was a gradual thing that happened, but 
it's just something that has rarely been done. Uh, you know, it's funny because um, I had my degree in 2003. Uh, so I left SI in 2001. It wasn't until 2006 that Jerry Tardy, editor of Golf Digest, called me in and offered me the job as the travel writer, uh, travel editor of Golf Digest and Golf World magazines. And uh, so there was a three-year period, was still trying to figure out how can I make this jump out of what it is I'm doing and into something that I really want to do, but also sort of make the same salary. Because I had built, you know, I got all this I had all this credibility and sort of investment into a world of photography. And yet my, my passion was pulling me towards writing the stories. That's not a, that's not, not a scary jump. The way I see all this stuff and I have young photographers all the time asking me, well, how do I know I'll be ready to go freelance? It's like, you can't know anything. It has to be so personally important to you that you're willing to make the risk and make the leap. That's the only way there is. And so you, I mean, you had a lot to lose in a lot of ways. I'm not sure that I ever really took enough time to assess that. Now, Christian Yost was a key part of that because I knew I needed to have someone who they were willing to have replace me. Right. And Christian was someone who had gotten to the point where he could, you know, he could take that job. That was important. They needed to have the demand for a a travel writer, but also for those two years while at school and then three years after, what I would do is if I was covering the Masters or covering the US Open or whatever, when I had all the photographers and we were doing the digital transmissions at, you know, at night for so that the editors would have it first thing in the morning, what I did is, you know, while the photographers were out shooting a lot of stuff at post round at a, at Augusta National, I would grab a notebook and I'd go shag quotes for Tim Rosaford or John Hawkins or Jaime Diaz or Bob Verdi or anybody who needed, I would just going back to sort of loving the idea of interviewing people and getting anecdotes or observations, I would, I would fill a notebook. I'd write up my notes. I'd, I'd file it to whoever was writing the story that was relevant to. And then I would start editing, knowing that I could edit fast, that I knew with the transmit. Uh, you know, right. very often I was the last one to leave the Augusta national press room. Jeff Rood of, of golf week, you know, I remember would be there. And we, we kept, you know, one day I actually showed myself out of the Augusta national <laughs> press room. I even outlasted the security guy. Well, that's, that's um, hard to do. That's very, hard uh, yeah, to do. it was, it was, I think the sun was definitely coming up, but that's, I was doing that because I just loved it. Yeah. I, and, and every now and then they would let me write my own little 250 word item. I'd get a byline. A byline to me was like one of the coolest things uh, that, you know, that I could get. And so I was, I was working my way towards that, whether they liked it or not, whether they, you know, it was not like they were paying me more to do it. I was doing it because I wanted to do it. So I think ultimately that, that definitely helped Columbia, the, the, the grind and just sort of the passion. Uh, and then obviously you have to have the opportunity. And so when Jerry called me in on a Friday evening, I was really getting bitter at being director of photography. Like I was, some of the attitudes and energy from the photographers was really getting to me. I had a lot less patience, a lot less willingness to stroke the egos. And it was running its course naturally, Mm -hmm. whether I liked it or not. And so when Jerry Tardy called me in on a Friday evening, I thought, oh shit, what's, you know, did I do something wrong? And he was actually offering me the job as a travel writer. 
And then I, then I thought, oh, this is everything I've ever wanted. But then I thought, you know what? Am I really ready to, to sort of purge this whole photography career? I said, can I think about it over the weekend? And I called him on my drive home from uh, Wilton, Connecticut to New York and said, wait a minute, I don't need the whole weekend. I've decided this is my dream job. I'll take it. I don't want you, to, you know, I don't want you second guessing yourself. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I'm glad you feel that way. I thought, you know, this might be a huge opportunity for you. And I, and I said, yes, I'm in. And, and it turns out what happened was because of the age of, you know, digital emerging at the time and blogs, I was able to use my photography background and what I'd learned from all those great photographers that I would be assisting for all those years. I learned to take my own pictures for my own stories as yep. I went out and started this, this travel brand, this travel career. And then, you know, I was learning how to do video. I mean, it all ended up being, you know, everything continues to kind of feed into what, where I am now, which is yeah. uh, a production, a production company, surrounding myself with talented people, telling stories, you know, writing it, taking pictures of it, editing video of it, podcasting with it. You know, as I said to you before we came on, I said, you know, I've been doing podcasts my, you know, for the last 13 years of my career. It's called an interview. Yeah. You know, I, I, and just usually you just only use a small portion of it and the rest goes, you know, to the wasteland. Whereas this venue's format, everything can kind of stretch out. You can, can let people breathe a little bit. And the common denominator of these disparate parts of the media landscape is so clearly a passion for storytelling because it, it. it wasn't, it was photography or it was, radio or was the television or now is, you know, digital media through social media and podcasting and whatever else is going to end up being passion for storytelling or connecting the audience to amazing stories and people in whatever field it is. That's always got to be the bedrock. And that's sort of what in the sort of very beginnings that we'll maybe look back on the rise of digital social media will be that some of the influencer culture got kind of lost sight of why, what, what do you have to say? Who are you? Like, why, why do we give a shit? You look great in that bikini. There's nothing wrong with that. But then what's the story you want to tell me? And I think hopefully maybe some of this slowdown we've had will kind of just make people passionate for reaching out and finding things They're a little better to put in their head. I, I agree with it. all that you say is, is true. I, I, I've often been asked, what is the common denominator? It is, that's my high, that's my rush, that's my drug, is getting somebody to tell me the story, their story, the story, a story, uh, whatever it is. I, I, that's, I've, that Jerry Bailey moment in which he uh, gave me the details of what I had seen, what I saw with my own eyes, but didn't know the, the, the particulars of. He gave that to me. I shared that with Bill Knack. Bill Knack shared that with 3.1 million subscribers. Right. And I was, I saw that whole narrative play out and I was like, I want more of that. That's, that's, you know, on a photo shoot with Walter Yosef with, with Tiger Woods, the tiger forgot to bring his golf attire. He was dressed in, you know, uh, casual clothes, but we needed also some uh, golf clothes. They send me back to Tiger's house to pick out a shirt and a hat. I go with his, this this is such an impossibility. No, it's not even close. Not even. Yeah. So I walked in his, 
desk was covered in mail. His master's trophy was under that mail. He had, a, <laughs> his, he had pictures that on his floor that had never been hung. He had a, a coffee table too big for the space in the middle of his sofa. So you, you actually you couldn't really sit in it. It was, it was the most bizarre thing. You know, I remember it like it was yesterday. And he had two rooms. He would use one room until it got messy. And then he'd move over to the other room. And someone would come in and clean the other room so that he would, you know, he was, and he had one closet full of golf shirts and one closet full of, you know, pants, hats on the top, and a little picture of, of Cub, you know, the Cubby, the, his caddy yeah, yeah, yeah. Next, next to his bed. And they had separated, parted ways just, just prior to that. So and that I tells thought, you something right there. Right. So he'd still had the picture by his bed. I, I watched and, and, and his whole life, John, was a mess outside of the golf course. Yeah. Now, come to think of it, in hindsight, of course it was. Now we know so much more about him. Of course. You know, on the course, inside the ropes, meticulous, organized, put together, buttoned up, prepared, dominant, off the course, mess, socially, shit show, not, you know, kind of a, a everything was nothing, not, not a lot of things made sense. He, his whole life had been this, you know, like the pictures is this tunnel vision around his profession, his passion and everything else was, and that's how it all played out. And I think he's still dealing with that to this day. I mean, I, absolutely. I used that visual and I shared those details with Scott Price, who was writing that story. And again, it, you know, uh, and then Mark Steinberg pulled me aside. I'll never forget. He goes, so uh, the details about the house and the master's trophy and thing and the, the cub and the picture, how did Scott know about that? I said, I told him. And he goes, you know, I had kind of, in their mind, I had violated a bit of a trust because I'd gone in the house, but no one told me, right. don't say anything. That's the way it was. I, I just, it was an observation. It was telling and it was detail that made that story more interesting to some, to people who were trying to learn more about Tiger Woods. And I, I just, that's all, it just kept feeding that beast Yeah. to this day. I'm still, that's still the drug. There's the same, you know, back, back into MJ. There's a story when Jordan turned 50, ESPN did a cover story on him at 50, written by Wright Thompson, who I went to school with in Missouri. Oh, cool. And Wright tells this story about Jordan not being able to find his six championship rings. He knows they're somewhere. He has a special thing to display them all together, but they've never been put in it because he's just, he doesn't, he's not in his home. He doesn't live at his home. He's in the world. He's in the, you know, he's out in doing his thing like, like Tiger. And he's now at home, trapped at home for some reason, and he cannot find all the rings and he's freaking the fuck out. And it's this, you know, it's a really amazing insight. There's little details and it's really a, a photographic lesson there that you're taking because if photographers know it's the people without a people's assignment often in college that really is extremely revealing about who we are and how we live. And you apply that across another part of the storytelling spectrum. And it's just as powerful. I, I used to say when social media came on board and, you know, Instagram had everybody looking around, right? You know, uh, photographers inherently to, to their craft are observers. They are, they're always seeing light and angles and composition. And it's part of what made them photographers. And the best ones did it better than the others. They all of a sudden, everyone was a photographer. Instagram and, and you know, everybody's posting. Well, I always said, even going back to 
say, dating, for example, if you want to see sort of the general tone of the way someone sees the world around them, go to their Instagram feed. It, you know, there's a tone to the feed, right? Dark, light. There's a, there's a, there's like a filter to their life that becomes revealed if you scroll through someone's feed. Uh, are they look? You know, are are they are there more happy people? Are they are they all selfies? You know, are they consumed by themselves? Is it you know? It's it's all. It, it just it's it's a, so much revealing happening by people revealing their eye on the world they live in. See, this yeah. happens. I happen to have a close friend who is dating someone new, and I, I you know, someone you know connected like, oh, you know, this this is her, and they send me the Instagram thing. And there's too many selfies of her in her Instagram page for me to be comfortable with. You yeah. know, the, eight her out of ten, nine out of ten. I, I would run the numbers. So so take a <laughs> take a thirty slide sample. If if twenty seven or twenty six of those s- slides are individual selfies of that person, what does that tell you yeah. about that person? That's pretty. That's a high number. It is a high number. <laughs> yeah. I mean, mine has been consistently zero out of 30 forever. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a different. Tells you more, you, you're more looking out and not, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, I, I don't know. There's, there's, I, I'm not well, it, it all changes. I mean, in the past year I've been assigned by major clients to photograph my own life and experiences, you know, three or four times, which is, I think, cha- you know, we're changing the borders of what is allowed and what do we want and how do we want to see things? And so very slowly, some of the clients that you left behind in the editorial world, which doesn't mean that you might not connect with them again in the digital space. Maybe you will. And I think you probably have a lot you can offer them to help them better represent the stories they're trying to tell. Because what I'm seeing right now is that brands and magazines know that digital storytelling and engagement is very important, but they've, They've given the account over to a couple of interns and they are not putting the resources to actually not only just broadcast, but to engage. And they're doing huge mistake. Well, it's it's just, it is the future in my, in my opinion. Oh, it's, it's not even the future. It's, I would say it was the future. I would say it was the future 10 years ago, 10 years ago. It was like, okay, this is, this is an opportunity for authentic, integrated marketing, this and cost-effective marketing. Yeah. And to your point, interns were running the social channels to this day, you know, yeah. uh, how many times do you see brands make huge mistakes with the wrong message, untimely message, tone deaf message, or just literally someone who doesn't know what they're doing, putting up a picture of their dick or something. I mean, yeah, we, that, that happens know, too. I mean, you know, you have these giant, you know, international conglomerate companies giving like this dude named Jared the keys to the kingdom. You're like, what the fuck is going on here, man? Yeah, that's an issue. This is all going back to a brand is a story. There is a story behind every brand. Brand management, there's an insatiable amount of desire for content because what content is, is a, a distribution of that ongoing brand narrative. Right. And a brand can be a company, a brand can, a brand can be a person, a brand can be a thing, a, a place, whatever it is. As storytellers or content creators, that is where the demand is happening right now. That is why I feel good about taking all of that I've learned and the toolbox that, that I've assembled 
into this production company business to say, all right, and I keep, I've always said it, this is your story. I'm here to help you tell it. Let's get to the heart of it. The GM or the, or the pro that's only been there for a year are not the best people to tell this no. story. Who are the authentic ambassadors? Who are the people who are coming here because, and paying to be here? Who's the caddy who's worked here for 40 years? Or who's the chef that, that turned this place uh, you know, upside down and created a new culture? And it's not only this restaurant, to this destination itself. You know, where's the music coming from? What's the, you know, what's the vision behind all of this? Let's get to the heart of the matter. That's what you do as a photographer. That's what you do as a writer. That's what you do as a, as a brand manager. Everybody's trying to figure out what's our story, who's the best person to tell it, what's that message, and how, how do we continue to distribute it on a regular basis? Now, I think what you're saying is very critical, especially looking at golf, because golf is so easily absorbed in its own sort of brand awareness in that you have a very sterile message coming from a few very top tier sponsors, and they can kind of control the narrative. But within what you strip out completely is exactly what you're saying about authenticity and about the story driven element about why this is important. You know, the feeling you get when you come into the drive in Augusta or all these different yeah. things that are about golf, the why people are out there and putting the hours in. Some of that can very easily be stripped away. And, you know, I had, I had a conversation very briefly recently about, you know, some of the current crop of tour pros. And we, I was telling a story about a cover shoot I had with someone who's still very active in golf. They're one of the, one of the veteran players, big personality. People can take or leave them, but I don't care if you're the nicest guy in the world or the meanest guy in the world. Just give me something. Just don't be, don't be one of these 24 year old fucking robots that doesn't seem to like anything. You know, the, you know, the golf writers are like, well, he, you know, he doesn't like white bread. Like who the fuck cares? Like, you know, nothing yeah. else. And yeah. it, the tour is kind of seems to be, at least from an American's perspective, really filled with these dudes who don't have much like story. You know, they just, they don't, maybe there's, it's somewhere in there, but they've been so well tailored to like be this, like every person, like for brands to just hitch their star to them. And it, it really does a disservice to the game. I really think that golf is smart to not, you know, I don't want these kids, these kids to get into trouble or do anything crazy or whatever else. But like you watch a golfer out there right before a major smoking a cigar while doing the most minimum amount of stretching ever. And he's like, cool. And now I'm going to do a professional tournament. And you're like, I fucking love this guy. Look at this guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a reason why, first of all, going back to Tiger Woods, right. In order to be an elite level golfer to get to that top 200 that are professional golfers making a significant amount of money playing playing a game what does that take that takes a very pretty a pretty isolated self-absorbed selfish mindset we don't even to, need to say order, golfers i mean for a lot of for, top right, anything for, really honestly yeah but even more so golfers it's it's a pretty you know, they're not playing on teams, right? They're not, you know, they, yes, they have college teams and college golf is creating a team element, but it's still you by yourself on the course, taking on one other player, basically, mm. or the course itself. That's inherent to sort of the golf culture in general, especially at the elite level. So that inhibits a lot of other development in terms of personality, other interests. You know, it's very restrictive. 
I was listening to my buddy Joe Horowitz last night. He's playing this garage band concert. He's like a plus two with a guitar and a voice, and he played on the Canadian tour. Now, that's unique for, for people to have that kind of skill. Gary Woodland, a very good athlete. Dustin Johnson, very good athlete. Brooks Kepka could have probably played other sports. But a lot of these other guys couldn't play many other sports, you know. Uh, Absolutely. Tennis, whatever, and by the way, know. Joe did a great job with the fire pits music. Sounds great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Joe Horowitz is a, is a gem. And uh, he had written this anthem for Goat Hill Park, of course, in, in Oceanside, California, that uh, John Ashworth manages with the whole t- city of Oceanside, really. Your bro, John Ashworth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, he, and it just so happened that I came, you know, the fire pit was this concept. And then uh, friend Matt Haggerty said, try to layer in a song that speaks to sort of the culture of, of your platform. And it was like, Joe's song, the fire pit concept, and we were off and running. And it was that really helped get that motivation level to the point where I immersed myself into sort of this concept of podcasting. But, you know, going back to your point about golfers and, and they're, they're a brand, and they're trying to manage their brand. They now realize they can tell their own story through their own social channels. Some of them are learning how to be storytellers by virtue of either imagery or short videos or. You know, Ricky Fowler, I recently saw, you know, kind of a a recent video that he did. Now, a lot of times if we were to scrutinize, we'd be like, this is boring, but it's successful for them because it's anything more than nothing. We don't get anything out of them. So if they do anything, you're like, wow, that's amazing. Well, I remember the video when, okay, who was it? It was, um, who are the bros who went to the Bahamas and did that video on the beach of them fucking around playing golf barefooted and whatever. It was the yeah. most personality I'd ever seen out of those three guys. And I've met a couple of them in person. Yeah. Jordan and Justin and the whole, the whole, you know. Now, okay, you know, so Jordan's, he's from Texas and, you know, he's maybe yeah. he's just a quiet kid. That's cool. Justin, I mean, everyone who knows me and cares about golf knows that I wish nothing good for Justin Thomas. He's a robot, man. I'm, I just, I'm sick of it. He's a great golfer. I like yeah. watching him play golf. That's fine. I wish he would, you know, just unbutton that top button, buddy. Just like let people a little bit in. Whatever advice I, you're getting fucking sucks. Like it's yeah, just, it's I, brutal. I haven't had any personal dealings with Justin Thomas for the most part. Jordan Speed, I've had a lot of really good dealings with him. Ricky Fowler is has always been really nice to him, but I always think we come, the problem is we also come in with these expectations of like, oh, they're going to be super cool or they're going to be great or they're going to be colorful. They're going to be sure. interesting. Or that. And then, Boo. You know, oh, they didn't. Well, yeah. And, you know, I mean, the last the golf I just shoot they- I had, I had a, a professional golfer, you know, literally putting down a length of a bar, in, you know, in Scottsdale. So, you know, there's yeah. all kinds of things we're going to be able to do. And, you know, but I would say this to Justin Thomas's rep. If Ricky Fowler, who still we were still waiting for him to win a major and now he's a veteran. If some of these younger guys had a bit more personality, Ricky would lose his sponsorships in, in the next six months. Because there is nothing for actual personality out there. And so we're still turning to Ricky. I like Ricky. He's a great yeah. golfer. Yeah. But like there's a, the reason why people are so passionate about him from a sponsorship level is that there's just not much personality out there. And, and then that's my perspective. You know, I, I don't want to put anything on anyone else, but that's that's kind of I mean, you know, I, I'll take a John Rom who's just fiery and angry occasionally. It's great. I mean, my favorite for sure is Stinson. I'll take him all day long and twice on Sunday. Yeah, great guy, great personality, great. You know, and and that's why I think that's why the Europeans 
win the hearts over uh, yeah. so many uh, Ryder Cup fans. How many Americans actually end up rooting for the Europeans because they're just more interesting. They're yeah. more colorful. They're more well-traveled. They came up, you know, in these other uh, other cultures that that afforded them the opportunity to kind of develop more personality. And because of those experiences, they're excited to be in, here in America to play golf. There's, they take, there's they tend to, to be here. They take themselves less seriously. They take the brand control of themselves less seriously. It's more of an open book. Sort of the, you know, how many you see the Europeans much more sort of, you know, drinking and partying or, you know, in a scenario that would be otherwise in America snuffed out by either, <sighs> you know, their parents or their brand managers Dude, or their agents. The stories of like, Rory drinking like on a Friday night and a Saturday night during a major because he has some buddies who just didn't make the cut and they're down in it and they're drinking and he's just, he's there with them, even though he's playing the next morning or the next afternoon or whatever the wherever he's yeah. going to be. I mean, that stuff's legendary and it matters to the other guys, you know, yeah. they take, I think it, it does affect the whole thing. I mean, I, I love Rory. I mean, it, it doesn't hurt that his mom was making sandwiches, you know, for us last time I shot him, but like, you know, That's he's cool. just, he's a sweet kid. He, you know, he is, he is. He, he uh, I went to his hometown and got to play his home course uh, in Northern Ireland. And it was, got to meet a couple of people he grew up with and really seeing this, this was, this is a small little course on the side of a hill. You need a Sherpa to get to the, you know, to get some of the tea boxes, <laughs> very narrow, right to left. You have to be very exacting with where you hit it. They used to lock him up in a locker room as a kid so that the other kids would have a chance to win the tournament because he was so, dri- <laughs> so driven. He was beating all the kids, all the older kids. They got a nice little tribute to him with a lot of his trophies. And I mean, he comes from, he comes from a play, you know, and then just sort of Irish in general give each other a lot of shit and don't allow, you yeah. know, other people to get big egos or big heads. Look at, look at Shane Lowry and Graham McDowell, yeah. Darren Clark. These right. guys are just, Fantastic. Patty Harrington, just good, colorful, engaging, thoughtful, and thought-provoking people. And I think Rory is just really coming into his own. Oh, for not sure. Only, not only as a, as a golfer, but as a man and as a, as a brand and as an ambassador to what he's passionate about. Absolutely. And just from a pure athletic standpoint, he's so, you know, his training is so smart. He can have as long as a career as he wants to because he's committed himself to as an athlete to being in a certain kind of shape that's going to minimize injuries. And, you know, his core strength is just a notch above a lot of these guys. Now things started changing, you know, years ago that people started taking more seriously after tiger, but that will matter. You know, he's in his mid thirties, but it won't be the same thing as what it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, 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 I think they all, you know, for the most part, if they're not taking that stuff seriously now, to some degree, they to your point, they're going to limit their longevity for sure. Yeah. You're reminding me that I offered Christian Yost to shoot a cover of beef for free after he broke onto the scene. I was like, whatever you got going on, if you haven't already had it, I'll do it for free. And he's like, I'm already on a flight to London right now. We're, we're doing it tomorrow. And I was like, fuck. Uh, beef. I got to play with beef in a Moroccan pro-am with the Prince of Morocco. The Prince of Morocco had handpicked Beef as his partner. Really? Beef had just Beef had just won, and it just yeah. said that I'm going to go back and you know get drunk after winning. Yeah, the Prince of Morocco loved it, and you know Beef is as kind and cool and sweet and fun. You would hope he. Yeah, would be. for sure. Yeah. See, and he seems that I haven't got to meet him in person yet, but great yeah. golfer, just so much great natural guy. talent, unbelievable. Yeah. 
because you're right now speaking to an audience mostly, and then we've just lost, you know, in the last 30 minutes, what you're doing, what you're saying is very interesting, but we've also lost a lot of, you know, died in the wool uh, photographers who don't play golf. But let me just give you the opportunity to talking to, you know, you and I love golf. You're much, much, much better golfer than I am, as you know. <laughs> what is it about the game of golf and your passion for it that, you know, I, I especially care for the fact that you're really passionate about getting more people out on the golf course in their local muni, not a fancy private club, not this idea, you know, someone's idea of a eight hour round, you know, that you're going to take all day. It's getting people out there, play for a couple hours and just get out on the golf course. That's it. Get out on the golf course. So, you know, it's, a, it's again, if I wasn't doing this, I'd be a superintendent because I love sunrise on a golf course or sunset on a golf course, do tracks in the morning. You know, if there's a spirituality to it all, it's, it's, it does feel like a religion to me, this, this open space, the, the fresh air, the places it takes you, cliff sides, trees, you know, um, uh, Lynx land, you know, there's a history to the ground you're walking on for the most part. In s- some cases, it is, you know, in the case of Winter Park 9, this is a this is a big part of the community I live in. The optics are that you're driving by it on a regular basis. So you, and you, all, you all, of course, you care about it, but it's, it's getting out, you know, there's a health aspect to it, the walk, the generational component, being able to be out there with my son or daughter or my wife or my family or my friends, their families. There's a community aspect. And I think on the back end, I've been, uh, the, the second episode of my podcast was a roundtable of all these industry leaders talking about where's the game positioned on the back end of, you know, being quarantined for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 weeks. What we hope, we all hope is that golf is positioned as a sport in which people are out in the fresh outdoors, you know, at a safe distance. Of course spending, you know, quality time with each other off of devices and sunlight and, you know, all of that. I've, I've never taken some, you know, sort of the visuals of the game. So the spirit of the game for granted, the, the camaraderie, I always say, it's not about what, where you are. It's about who you're with. Right. That's very true with the game of golf. If you're with the right group, it doesn't matter no. what course you're playing or how much you're paying. You're going to have a great time. Part of it, you can play this Winter Park 9 in less than two hours. It is less than $20. Uh, it is a place that is, it welcomes my family and my kids. We don't have to wear collared shirts or no one's going to kick us off for not wearing the right kind of attire. That's important. Is that something that there are other parts of golf that you think would be smart to relax some of the otherness involved? Oh, yeah. I actually think that Nike and their new style of polo shirt that's colorless. I actually thought when I first saw that, maybe this is going to change a little thing because here's, you know, here's a tour player basically not wearing a collar sort of, maybe we can all just, just chill the fuck out, act with decorum, own your own self and be, you know, be respectful to the game and to, you know, the course you're at. But is the collar shirt really that important? Really? You know, if that matters to you, right. you know, with all that's going on and we show up and I'm not in a collar and you are, and you think less of me because I'm wearing a t-shirt and you're wearing a collared shirt. It's like, we're playing a game outside. This is not even a tournament. We're going for an enjoyment. Like, you know, if I were to go play 
basketball, if we shoot three on three, or if we're going to go for a jog, or if we're going to go for a hike, what does it matter? That it, it, the idea of a just because way back when they used to wear three piece suits when they played the game, <laughs> right? Doesn't mean that it's still that's not a tradition that needs to continue to carry on. I know enough to know what's appropriate, just like you know when you're going to a more expensive restaurant than a than a burger joint. You know, you go to the nicest restaurants in Hawaii because of a cultural situation. You can wear anything you want. In fact, if you wear too dressy, now you're out of line. Right. Know? So the, the cultural walls that the game uh, comes with are are coming down. Yeah. Those those are. Coming down and have been over a long period of time. I think we either we drop them down or we we make them way higher. You know, all wool. <laughs> everyone has to wear uh, you know knee socks. I mean, let's just do the whole goddamn thing and then see how they have caddies wear bibs. You know, in a hundred and ten yeah. degree, hundred and twenty degree weather. Brittle. It's like uh, with the, the the jumpsuits. It's like, well, what are we doing here? Why? You know, I hate when anytime there's a violation of common sense, it it, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, that's well I, said. I that's, I'm that's, not alone. That you know, might be on my uh, tombstone. There yeah, was a violation yeah. of common sense. Thus, yeah, I died. Yeah, come on. Especially now. I mean, look around. You know, like I know we we can so clearly see the blessings in our life, and golf yeah. is one of the things we can do to be out in the world and just you know just let go of some other things and be in our head. I think that muni courses are a great way to bring more people into golf. They're in many ways how most people have come to the game. We now have Top Golf, which exists because the game of golf, you know, I use the skiing analogy all the time. Too many double diamonds. If if ski slopes were only double diamonds, how many people would ski? Not many. Hopefully not. You have to have many. the bunny slopes to, to to learn. Though you know my wife is a radiologist, so we want a certain number of people to continue to do double black diamonds <laughs> so that we can keep the X-rays coming. That makes sense. You know, I, I always say that if, if, if we're trying to get people into skiing, we said, oh, go up this double diamond. And they come, you know, came down in pieces. And then we'd say, wasn't that amazing? Don't you want to do it again? Give us another $250. Go to the top and we can do it again. That's how the golf experience is to some people. It's like putting them at the top of a double diamond, charging $250. They fall all the way down. And then we say, want to do it again? Yeah. That's why golf having a municipal WP9 high side half pars, meaning it could be a par three or it could be a par four. Right. Listing is a par four, which means most people, you know, now have a chance at their first birdie, their first par, their first eagle, their first round, you know, their, their best round, their best score. That's all there for you here in this municipal in the, in the least amount of time that you're going to take to play it and the least amount of money you're going to take to, you know, to pay to play it. For sure. When you add up all those elements, that's growing the game mm -hmm. when people are having fun and want to come back. And we, we talked about golf or a restaurant or the experience factor, right? What, you know, what a good restaurant will deliver is probably good food, but we go back because it was a great experience. We go, we love the local bar because the experience that they provide or the diner that gives us that, that, that experience we're looking for. Golf is the same way. You know, that, and if people can create, you know, I think on the back end of this, of where we're at, I don't care what business you're in, what brand you're, you're, you're a part of, what story you're telling, it's going to be more about the experience than it is just the cachet of, look who I am, look where I am, look what I'm doing. It's look who I'm doing it with. This is my family. These are my friends. If we can get there, 
then we've then we've learned something. I talk about this all the time. It's the Houston's analogy. You know, Houston's are not the fanciest restaurant chain in America, but they're consistently probably the greatest. Yeah, we do. We go to Hillstone. Hillstone is, is what it's called in some cities, and here here we have another version that's even a different name that I've never even seen before. But they're just fucking great. They know exactly who they are, and they yep. just deliver a fantastic not only food but service. So consistent experience, experience. Like you know, the the whole place is moving. They usually have a good setting. The 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 decorum that works. The lighting works. Totally. The open open kitchen. The menu. They uh, you know you know what you can count on. You have that. Like going back to players, you have high expectations, and they meet them. Yeah, every time, every, every time. time. No, I, I really time. love the uh, the coronavirus date night situation. That was perfect. That was a perfect go to. Way to, yeah, way, to, way, to, way to bring it home there for you and your wife. That was awesome. Well, I think I'm, it's a good reminder. I think I need to dial up another one of those. She's got a birthday coming up. So this is. Hey, uh, I'm in the same boat. My wife is, what are we? We're T minus two weeks, I think here. So I got we to I gotta think of something. I'm a few days. Uh, and our daughter's 16th year old birthday. Uh, simultaneously, they share a birthday, wife and daughter. So oh, that's exciting. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. we we wrap up with talking about the fire pit, your new podcast. You have now two episodes out. The second one is a much more topical look at where we are right yeah. now. And I, I feel the same way with my own podcast. I have one this week I'm going to record. That's just trying to deal with not coronavirus necessarily, but like, Hey, we're all in something right now. Let's not just put the blinders on and ignore it. Let's actually engage and, you know, just yeah. come together a little bit. But the idea itself is yet again about storytelling. How did it come together and what do you have in the future for the fire pit? Yeah. So, you know, when you go on golf trips or when you go on a trip or when you go to a restaurant, you go to someone's backyard, the fire pit is the the gathering place. It's the place where you can reflect or catch up. You really connect around a fire. It could be strangers. It can be longtime friends. The conversation can go a lot of different directions tends to be where the real truth comes out <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> so a friend of mine, I was fishing around with the concept and a friend said, Hey, you know, there's no place I'd rather be right now at a fire pit with you. I was like, wow, that's, that's got some, and I didn't want to do a wide range of topics because I think that's being done a lot in the golf space already. I want to drill down on one story, get to the heart of one good story every episode first two, I haven't been able to do this. I want to keep them closer to 30 minutes than 60 minutes because, again, because of all the options you have out in the the golf space, you know, really sort of analyzing uh, the options of what I would consider my competition, so to speak, and want people to sort of be able to do it with one workout session. So if you're on a treadmill or or drive to work, or I want you to be able to sort of get that at base. So Coming up uh, this weekend, we're working on it now, is the story of Alan Shipnuck, writer at Sports Illustrated. Guy was the youngest staff writer ever at the age of 19, wrote a cover story on Ken Griffey Jr. when he was 20 years old. Cool. And so while he was at UCLA, and it's got a lot of twists and turns to it. I got Mark Mulvoy helping tell the story. He was the former editor of Sports nice. Illustrated. So I'm try- trying to bring in these surprise voices. Um, I'm trying to get Ken Griffey to pop on and, and <laughs> uh, be a part of the part of the podcast. So we're going to try to tell stories with multiple voices, but it's all relating to one story, a little context and the, and a good kicker. So that's great. Uh, well, I'm excited to listen to more. The first two episodes are up now and available everywhere. You guys find podcasts, Maddie. It's uh, it's great talking to you, buddy. It's great to see you. 
I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad your family's doing well. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for this opportunity. You know, the, the photography aspect of my life, you know, the Eddie Adams workshops and the, you know, the Bill Frakes at the finish line of Kentucky Derbies and going to Super Bowls and Olympics in Australia and the talented people that uh, I worked with that you've worked with over the years. In fact, Ben Van Hook, who was a photographer in Orlando, who I worked with at Sports Illustrated, is the reason why the Friday skins started happening. For sure, yeah. Because he was inviting me to his Friday group and it started growing. I said, well, let's turn this into a skins game. And that, so photography is still very much a, a big part of my life. And it's, uh, as I say in my, in my bios, I was born at Sports Illustrated, raised at Golf Digest and had a fun run at Golf Channel. And now we'll see where it goes. Uh, well, I'm excited to see what's next. And if you uh, see anything else in your crystal ball in the future of media, you know, you let us know first and we'll, we'll try to help you build it. <laughs> I'm chasing it myself uh, always. I, I don't even know if I ever find it. It's always just the great chase, right? I think we're all part of it. Well, I just having your eyes open wide enough to see that there are opportunities. You know, it, it's so easy to see, well, it's fucked. That's fucked. That's fucked. Yeah, but at the same exact time, there's so many more people every single day hungry for stories, hungry for passion, hungry for engagement. Yeah. Someone's going to be building the future right now. And you're either going to be involved or not. I used to tell photographers at S, you know, back, back at SI when I started seeing video come online. If you're not learning about video or getting up to speed with video, you're going to be pet. If you're not doing social media in conjunction with what you're doing from a photographer, you're going to be in trouble. If you're not going digital and staying film, you might be in trouble. If you're not, you know, it's a, I, it all, I saw it very clear. Like for me, if I'm not, if if I'm just sticking to photography not learning how to write. I think, you know, if you're not building your toolbox, mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going to run out of, you know, houses to build because someone else is going to have a better toolbox and build that house in a way that you can't. So that's, I think that's probably the essence of it all. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for talking. Thanks, John. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. My thanks to Matt for stopping by. You can check out his new podcast, the fire pit wherever you listen to fine podcasts. Also connect with Matt on Instagram at Matt underscore Janella, G-I-N-E-L-L-A, or on Twitter at Matt Janella. And friends, if you're digging what you're hearing on iPod, please stop by Apple Podcast and give us five stars and even drop a review. I bow down to my brother, Scott Pryor, for supplying the fantastic music. Listen more at scottpriormusic.bandcamp.com. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. This is my dad's podcast, and it's called Eyeball. <laughs> Goodbye, you crazy animals.